Hello and welcome to the Social Market Foundation podcast, bringing you news, views and expertise from Britain's leading centrist think tank. I'm James Kirkup, Director of the Social Market Foundation. Before I came to this job, I was a political journalist at Westminster, where I spent my time talking to politicians, officials and other insiders about politics and policy. And now I'm going to be doing the same thing in these podcasts. Today's podcast is part of our Ask the Expert series, in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council, where we bring publicly funded academics and experts to Westminster and use all their learning to enhance the policymaking process. Today I'm talking to Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh of Cardiff University, who's also Director of the UK Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformations. You know, there are lessons that we can learn from how not to, to go about this and, and avoid that sort of polarisation and, and public kind of protest. And that, I think, in part at least, means that we have to really understand what are the values driving different groups of people. Why might they be critical, concerned and, and sceptical about climate change? We're going to be talking about environmental policy, but from a psychological perspective, talking about how policymakers can engage with the public to help them change their behaviours in support of environmental policy policy. So, Lorraine, um, let's start with your job title. Professor of Environmental Psychology. Um, What's environmental psychology? Environmental psychology is the study of the relationship between individuals and the physical and natural environment around them. And so that's a two-way relationship. We're interested partly in how the environment impacts on people. So that that is from everything from building design and how that might affect your work practices through to how you feel in natural spaces and the fact that that's associated generally with higher well-being. But equally, we're interested in the impact that individuals have on the natural and physical environment. So in my case, I'm particularly interested in the way in which people understand climate change and uh, the things that they might do to exacerbate or adapt to climate change. Yeah, of course. And so when we come to basically public opinion attitudes to climate change, in very broad terms, everybody thinks that the climate's a problem now and that something should be done, isn't it? Lots of polls showing a growing acceptance that there's a problem with the climate and that some sort of response is required. Is that a fair summary? Pretty much. I mean, we've definitely seen a, a significant growth in public acceptance that there is a problem and concern about it. And actually, we're at pretty much record levels of concern now. About 85% of the public in the UK say that they are very or extremely concerned about climate change, which is higher than we've seen in the past. So yes, the, the, the vast majority of people do accept it's a problem. And you did some polling uh, in the centre over the summer looking at particular sorts of behaviour. I think you found that, was it 67% of people now think that we should limit the amount of air travel we do and 53% think that we should reduce the amount of meat in our diets. I've got a a sceptical question about that, I suppose, which is that isn't it quite easy for people to respond positively to that sort of contention in a poll? But that's quite a different thing to them actually going away and deciding not to go on a summer holiday to Spain or not to have a bacon sandwich this weekend. I mean, what I mean is, isn't there a possible hypocrisy out there in public opinion in that we all say, yes, we want something done about the climate, but we'd rather somebody else did it rather than us? 
Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we see this across a range of issues, but environmental ones very much so, that there is a, an attitude behaviour gap, as we call it, that yes, there's generally concern about environmental issues, but people generally aren't doing that much to tackle them. There are a number of reasons why that is. Often it is just actually very difficult to do the right thing for the environment. It might be more expensive or more inconvenient. Other people are not doing it, so it sort of demotivates you. It's a big collective problem. So we all need to be taking action, which which doesn't help to motivate the individual so yeah so absolutely so what we need to do is I guess take those polls with a pinch of salt that they are a very crude barometer for public feeling about an issue that we are seeing more support for these sorts of um, changes than we have seen in the past which I think you know mirrors the fact that people are saying they're more concerned about the environment and climate change but what we now need to do is to implement policies that mean that we are all forced to and encouraged to change our behavior and we're not leaving it up to individuals to voluntarily do their bit which which doesn't work. I've cast some doubt on the value of polls in that context. You're involved in some experiments or initiatives trying different different tests and measures of attitude and opinion on this, aren't you? That's right. One of the things that we're increasingly advocating and getting involved with is more deliberative methods to talk to the public over a longer period of time and in more depth, giving them more information about the issues, about the pros and cons of different policy options, to get a, a deeper sense, really, of what people would be willing to support, how much they would be willing to change their behaviour. And so, although that's much more time-intensive and costly than just a, a survey, it does give you a better idea of actually what would be a publicly acceptable policy. Best described as citizens' juries as opposed to citizens' assemblies? or that's that's right. Well, there's a range of different sort of deliberative and participatory methods. Citizens' assemblies are the ones that are getting a lot of attention at the moment. They are where you sort of convene quite a large number of members of the public, a very diverse range, broadly that, that maps onto the demographics and opinion profile of the population so that you are getting a sort of snapshot of what ideally what the broader public thinks about the issue. And you spend in this case, that for, in the case of the UK Citizens' Assemblies on Climate Change, four whole weekends with a 110 members of the public and really go into details of all of the sort of aspects of policy that relates to climate change, whether that be around transport, heating in the home, what we eat and buy, etc. And looking at the sort of what, what people would, would, would do to change their own behaviour, what policies mm. they would accept in those different areas. Now, in terms of public opinion, we've been talking about this as one, one whole, but of course we know that there are lots of different views within that whole. And one particular sort of striking thing that comes out of some of your work is that depending on our values or our sort of political worldview, we view this issue differently and respond differently to interventions. Could you tell us a little bit more about that work? That's right. Yeah, we've, we've done a number of experiments over the last several years trying to disaggregate groups according to their, their values, their ideologies and various other ways of segmenting the, the, the public. We know, for example, that political ideology is one of the strongest predictors of people's attitudes around climate change. So uh, in one set of experiments, we looked at people on the left of centre politically and compared those with people in the centre and, and those on the right and gave them different messages around climate change and found quite significant differences in how those messages were responded to according to whether messages resonated with the values of those different, those different audiences. So for example, those on the left of centre politically particularly liked the kind of justice and equity framed message. Those on the right of centre politically 
tended to prefer the kind of British patriotism, self-sufficiency messages and the messages around not being wasteful around energy. And that actually seemed to have quite broad political appeal. So it did, it did make a difference how you, how you spoke about climate change and energy saving. In some of your work, it actually shows that just the simple acceptance of climate change. Sometimes you can actually increase scepticism by giving people information. Is that is that a fair summary? That's absolutely correct. So yeah, in, in another set of studies, we actually gave people two articles around climate change that were very differently framed. One was a kind of sceptical article. One was a more um, sort of alarmist or kind of article advocating action on climate change. And we found that people who we broadly categorise as being sceptical before having read the articles became even more sceptical having read those two articles that we, we thought could be arguably balanced. And whereas those who were already concerned about climate change became slightly very slightly more concerned about climate change. So it actually served to polarise opinion rather than bring people closer together into any sort of consensus. And I think that's that's the issue that we have in the sort of climate change context is it, it is a very sort of polarised information context. People just take the information that they want to kind of reinforce their existing yeah, views. Yeah, confirmation bias. Exactly. Um, and in terms of that, that polarising process, you've talked also about the importance of values in this, in this context. And this is something that people who do politics for a living are are increasingly interested in values as to how values help form form voting behaviour. Broadly speaking, there's a sort of shift in understanding among political practitioners away from a left-right axis understanding of politics towards a sort of a values-driven view of the, of the electorate, where there are on one side you have people who cluster around certain characteristics like degree education and liberal social attitudes and support for membership of the European Union and the other, on the other side of the divide you have people who probably don't have a degree who are in favour of I mean, the death penalties no, of no marker and also in that cluster we of values we tend to find scepticism about the environment so within that way of understanding politics and the electorate is there a risk that the environment just gets sucked up into that horrible culture war way of talking about public policy that means that you're either on one side or the other and climate action is something that one group of people does and the other group of people doesn't do. Is there a risk? And if it is, how do we how do we stop it? Yeah, I think there is a, a very real risk of that. And I think, you know, we can learn from examples in France with the Gilets Jaunes that actually where there was this kind of sense of, you know, climate action being imposed on the public and, and certain sections of the public feeling that that was particularly unfair, get carbon tax that meant that they weren't even able to kind of live their lives and go to work and so on, that they were being unfairly penalised. You know, there are lessons that we can learn from how not to to go about this and, and avoid that sort of polarisation and, and public kind of protest. And that, I think, in part at least, means that we have to really understand what are the values driving different groups of people? Why might they be critical, concerned and, and sceptical about climate change? And actually have a deeper debate, whether that be a citizens' assembly or some other sort of, you know, broad societal debate that brings people with us when we're actually trying to design policy interventions. And I think part of this is about kind of having a just transition so that we're actually thinking about who are the people that could be losing out if we 
take action to tackle climate change and why might they be quite justifiably not wanting to support that action and and actually finding ways in which we kind of compensate those people or bring those people with us and so it is I think it is absolutely critical that we have that that debate as part of that. The French example the, the, the Gilets Jaunes you, you cite there I don't think this is properly understood enough in UK politics that the Gilets Jaunes phenomenon is, is very much a factor of environmental policy but that, that, that's a case study in how not to do this isn't it that's basically an enarch in a palace in Paris deciding that uh, essentially poor provincial French you know, must pay more to drive around. Exactly. And that's the best way possible to generate a political backlash. I, I think that's absolutely right. I think it, it is interesting when we when we compare in our poll that we found more support for people reducing flying than we did for reducing meat. And I, I wonder, this is something that we can follow up, whether that might be because actually if you look at who is doing the flying, yeah. it's the richest people yes. that are doing the most flying. And it's not something which you actually have to do to live your life. Whereas there is a sense in which which people might see that eating meat is an absolutely fundamental part of what they do. For some people, it's part of their identity. You know, it's what people, maybe of all classes, but but certainly kind of the working class would would maybe feel that this is completely unfair and, and I don't understand why we would need to kind of change this behaviour. This is something which affects everybody potentially, whereas flying is much more about an elite thing that we maybe need to be kind of having. You know, there's interesting discussions about frequent flyer levy. I think those are the sorts of things which, in theory, should have broader appeal, actually. I grew up in rural Northumberland, and well, I'm entirely committed to to the environment. But you'll prize my Scotch egg from my cold dead hand, frankly. <laughs> um, thank you. That's a very good sort of overview of where we are with public opinion, how people see this, and how you know how we can understand their their psychology. Uh, the second part of the conversation, I suppose, is about what policymakers can do about this. If you're sitting in an office in Westminster, we're in Westminster now, trying to work out how to devise and implement and deliver policy that can essentially help people to change their habits, change their behaviour you know, in such a way as to reduce carbon emissions, address the climate climate issue. What are the, the starting principles for good policy here, do you think? I think it comes out of what we've already started to talk about, really, which is that having a sort of public debate, actually engaging with the public is one of the first and most important things to do. Actually understanding what might be the impediments to achieving net zero in terms of, you know, people's lives and and why might we potentially end up in a gilet jaune situation and how can we avoid that? So I think... I think public engagement is a, is probably step number one. I think also learning from past examples about what's worked and what hasn't worked. This is something that we're going to be doing in the centre over the next year or two is actually learning from transformation. Examples both from environmental context, but other examples and applying those lessons here. And I mean, what we know already from the smoking example and why we've seen such massive cuts in the proportion of the public who do smoke now relative to some decades ago is that that took a series of interventions targeted at different groups at different levels of society so business the public a range of different measures over a period of time at the culminating in in regulation and actually kind of and bans ultimately so we need to get to a stage where we have gone through various stages and we are uh, you know wholesale shifting behavior but we need to bring the public with us uh, now, in terms of learning from examples of what's worked elsewhere or what the experience elsewhere teaches, uh, two, two questions, I suppose, geography and history. So are, are, there, are there places around the world where this is working or not working, uh, that, uh, other than France, that we can learn from? And is there a, are there any historical lessons here about other, other big social transformational changes that have taken place? 
Yes, I think we can learn a lot from history and geography. Uh, absolutely. That's that's one of the things we want to do in the centre is to kind of to collate those lessons and sort of examples of best practice. So I don't have a definitive answer yet, but I can I can flag that just from looking at some of the examples of where transport policy seems to be working well, there are certain cities where, you know, there are very high levels of active travel and public transport use. And for example, in Germany, places like Freiburg and other places like Copenhagen and the Scandinavia, in the sharing economy, there's some good practice going on also in Scandinavia and elsewhere. So, so for those who aren't wholly familiar with the sharing economy, what how does that work? So it's a shift away from owning towards kind of sharing and borrowing. So we see it, for example, in, in mobility. So, you know, people using Uber and other um, service providers to get around rather than actually uh, owning their own car. But equally, in terms of kind of other material products, things like the uh, library of things are cropping up all over the place, tool libraries. There was a committee on climate change said last year, suggested that instead of buying your own lawnmower, you share a lawnmower with neighbours and things like that. Goods that you're not going to use all the time. It's exactly that. There's no need to duplicate it. That's right. No, exactly. I mean, yeah, the sorts of things that you use very infrequently that we could just borrow from neighbours or whatever. And historically, am I right in thinking you're thinking about looking at the mass observation studies and post-war experience of rationing? That could be one example that that we look at. I think that the wartime analogy uh, is mentioned quite often as something we can learn from because the scale of change and the timescale over which it was rolled out are analogous to what we need to do for climate change. We need to kind of radically, well, reduce the amount of consumption that that, that, uh, is is happening. Um, But the problem there is that there isn't a visible enemy as there was in the war, so actually getting public support for that is going to be much more difficult. Uh, So I think, I don't know if there are any perfect analogies for how we tackle climate change, but there will be lessons from those sorts of things, um, but also kind of various health kind of interventions um, that we can draw. Uh, for because I mean, to sort of explore that wartime analogy, I suppose, if we look at some of the personal changes that will be required, they are quite drastic, aren't they? I mean, there's a, um, a study, Wines and Nicholas, which looks at the, the, the personal changes that individuals can make to reduce their carbon or their climate change contributions. Uh, and the biggest single thing that we can do is have one fewer child. Now, that's obviously, that is the the rational and effective policy response to to this issue, but can you ever imagine a politician standing for election on a platform of either advocating or mandating fewer children? It would be very difficult to imagine that. I think that's that's the one that got the headlines out of that hmm. study. That's the one that is by far the most contentious issue, and actually. You know, there is there is a lot of debate around how you calculate emissions in that in that sense. You know, how do you attribute? Should the parents get the you know get the blame for all their children's emissions? <laughs> I mean, it, it's not it's not quite the same as the number of flights you have, etc. Whereas the other things that that study shows quite clearly, and this is consistent across other things, is you know reduce the amount yeah. of flying and driving and the amount of meat and dairy that you eat are the best sort of things that you can do to tackle climate change. And there there's still things which are going to be contentious and which we need to have a debate about but if you spell out to people the trade-offs or the yeah. you know the choices here well actually if we don't change these sorts of things this is what the future is going to look like for us and it's not a particularly safe or pleasant future for most people at least so i think it is about again it comes back to this debate i think we need to sort of have this 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 discussion 
do we want to make these significant lifestyle changes or do we want to um, live the way we are but potentially in a in a four degree world with uh, vast amounts of environmental risks and, and I, I partly raise the the, the the children question to give you an excuse to talk about Prince Harry because that's a sort of populist approach policy we take around here Prince Harry and his wife have said that they're going to have I can't remember they're having one fewer child than they would would do otherwise for environmental reasons I mean is there a role for non non-political actors in in the policy debate here. I'm not asking for expert comment on whether or not people will listen to Prince Harry. But this is surely something to bring about the sort of change in culture and behaviour that we're talking about. This has to be something that requires, that involves people other than politicians, doesn't it? I mean, we can't just look to MPs to change this. The influencers have to be enlisted as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think we know from studies of behaviour that one of the strongest influences on what we do is what other people do. Mm. And actually, that operates often at a sort of unconscious level. So we just sort of follow what other people are doing in an implicit way, not necessarily sort of aware of that. But I think it is really important to have people who are sort of champions and leaders of a low carbon lifestyle and showing that it's it's possible, that it's desirable, that this actually, this idea of co-benefits. And, 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 and beneficial. And ben- beneficial to the individual, but also obviously to, to broader society in the environment so actually sort of showing that it's normal I think that increasingly changing the sort of social norm and just by having high profile people change their behavior but some of the work that we're also doing at Cardiff is actually looking at well who are the the best leaders to inspire people because as you say for some people it could be royals they could actually genuinely be very inspired by those sorts of decisions but for other people they may not necessarily find that uh, motivating and they might look to either people within their community or um, other sorts of leaders of various kinds to to model the behaviour that we should live. Yeah, and again, we, we're coming back slightly to that, that, that your earlier point about what the, the different framing and messaging that is more influential with some groups rather than others. So for some people, it will be more effective to show that by changing your behaviour, you are reducing waste and you are helping Britain to lead the way in this debate. And in some people, it will be more effective to show that you are promoting fairness nationally and globally. Is that? Exactly. And there are some kind of messages and ways of talking that seem to have fairly universal appeal, the the waste one being an example. Uh, but there are then there are others which seem to be a bit more polarizing, for example, the, the kind of the justice one. So we need to find those ways of talking that engage audiences, whether it's sort of specific groups or at a population level. But it's absolutely about getting the messages more in line with people's values. Yes. And ultimately, if, if there's a sort of single takeaway from all of this for anybody who's who is a policymaker, a practitioner in this about how you take people with you on this, it is engage to actually to talk and listen and and not impose is that a fair summary that's absolutely right yeah to talk to listen to engage and I think to walk the talk as well I think this isn't something we necessarily have discussed already but I think it does come down to also this idea of leadership so I mean it's all very well kind of policymakers saying you should be doing this but if if we see that policymakers in the same way as kind of other high profile people are not leading the way then it doesn't it doesn't really kind of resonate so well it does it's not a credible message Listen to voters. Don't be hypocritical. I mean, amazing, yeah, amazing, radical suggestions for politics. Who knows? It, maybe, maybe somebody, 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 someone will try it. Uh, thank you very much. I think we'll leave it there. Thank, thank you. This was the Social Market Foundation podcast in conjunction with the Economic and Social Research Council as part of our Ask the Expert series. Thank you very much to our expert, Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh of Cardiff University. Thank you to Barbara Lambert for producing this fine podcast, and thank you for listening. Until next time, bye-bye. Thank you.